0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 5. You know, the beautiful thing about what the team just shared and what they experienced is that God loves people so much that it doesn't matter what barriers get in the way, he finds a way to overcome them. And the team would tell you the barriers that God had to overcome for them to get there and to do what they did while they were there. It's a demonstration, once again, that God loves us and loves people so much that he will not allow us Ourselves or any other thing get in the way of his love and encountering our lives. It's just amazing. It's incredible um, And just to be reminded of that god loves people so much that he cares for the whole person And when you guys are sharing just thinking about you know When jesus on multiple occasions he fed the multitudes He started with their physical need and it led to the spiritual reality of their life He cared for the whole person um, And that's important for us to be reminded as, as a church is that we we need to see the big picture that god loves people so much that He feeds the hungry he clothes the naked he gives those who are thirsty a drink of water, but he cares so much for them that he doesn't stop there He moves down to the, the biggest reality That's our own spiritual need of being reconciled back to god, which is what god obviously has called us to be as a church So if you have your bibles as I mentioned, we are in matthew chapter 5 verses We'll look at verse 17 to verse 20 as now we've we're, We've made it through the beatitudes and then last week We talked about what it looks like to be salt and light in a world which that wasn't challenging at all very easy message to handle obviously you weren't here. So anyway, um, this, so th- this morning we, we transition to another passage which Jesus really goes after something that's extremely important to the rest of Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about this understanding the law. Um, and this is important for us because although most of us in this room are not Jewish, um, and we didn't grow up in a Jewish culture, Uh, For the Jew, the law was everything. That was their context of life. That's the way they functioned. So for Jesus to come along and say what he's going to say in this passage, it was extremely important, if not controversial, for them to hear what he was about to say. And when you and I think about this concept of the law, we usually, because if you've come to know Jesus, usually in the church what we triumph is not the law, but grace. We talk about the fact that Paul writes about that that our salvation is based on grace grace not on our works and so we we love to to talk about grace and so we kind of have we, we kind of live in the grace camp and a lot of times what the grace camp becomes is that we think somehow well if i'm saved by grace and god loves me and he forgives my sins from you know, from the past present and future then basically in my own mind that means that i have a free license to do whatever i want to do now we don't say that but sometimes we live that way. Oh, God's going to forgive me. So I just kind of live in that reality. And, then, and then, then, then there's some within the church, a smaller probably segment, which really goes after the law side, which is, yeah, we're saved by grace, but boy, I better, better not mess up because I don't want to test that because God might judge me and send me to hell. So I better do everything by the letter of the law. And we live in this legalism and this shame when we fail. And our relationship with God is not really a relationship at all. It's more of a contract that we have to keep up somehow in order for us to actually relate to God. And so we go to those two extremes, and when Jesus starts to talk, what we'll read here in just a moment, about, about the law, he comes to, uh, to an understanding that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And, and in fact, what he says is really actually opposite of what I think you and I many times come to this conclusion in. And that is that somehow Jesus came to destroy and oppose the law. And you, don't say, you and I don't say that. We think, no, we're under grace, so the law doesn't matter anymore, right? In fact, there's a guy, he's not a believer, uh, who wrote a book, his name's A.J. Jacobs, and for a year, the book is called The Year of Living Biblically, he tried to obey the law in modern times. In the clothes that he wore, and the food that he ate, and in the rhythm of life, he tried to obey the law. It was quite humorous, because it's almost impossible to do that. But, but thinking about, yeah, well, the law and then grace and what that looks like in our lives. So with this understanding of kind of what does it really mean to understand the law? And how how is this, the law still come to bear in our lives, even if we're under grace? So with that understanding, we'll get some more clarity on it as we move forward. Let me read what Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the Pharisees probably didn't think that was true. Going on to verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any uh, any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of these or the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you just look at those few verses and you walk away and think, Jesus is telling us we have to obey the law. We have to do everything right, otherwise we're not in. And if we don't do it right and we teach other people not to do it right, then we're going to be considered least in the kingdom. Didn't, if, wouldn't you just take away from that? Just stop reading right there and we just fold up our Bibles and say, man, I better go go out and start living by the law. That's what you take away from that. But Jesus says something that's extremely important. That's just the basis of what we're going to talk about this morning. And that's what he says in verse 20. He says, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But before we get to that, because that is what Jesus is talking about. And that really starts to define specifically what it means to fulfill the law in our lives. Now, Jesus says this because he is the one and only person who's walked this planet, who ultimately, in the expression of his life, fulfilled the law and the prophets. Nobody else could do this, but Jesus did. And let me give you some example. I know this is kind of a little bit of historical context, but you have to understand this to appreciate this. So again, Jesus is speaking primarily at that time. He's speaking to Jews that are listening to him, so they have a context that we don't have. So when he starts talking about the law, how did Jesus fulfill the law? So for the Jew, there was kind of three major categories that would kind of encompass what the law was to them. The first was kind of the moral law that that was was what God had set up from giving them the law. It was the kind of foundational code by which they were supposed to live their life. It was that moral perfection that they were aiming for. There's only one human being in all of human history who has achieved moral perfection in this world. His name is Jesus. Jesus. He never sinned, he never failed, he lived up completely to the expectations of the law because he never failed. So Jesus comes and he fulfills the moral code that nobody else could fulfill, Jesus fulfills it by living a perfect life. The second kind of category of the law is the judicial portion of the law, which God gave to his people as kind of a way of saying, you are my special people, therefore, this is the way that you will live as a nation. These are kind of the the ways and the laws that you will obey because you are going to be separate and different than the world around you. And so how does Jesus fulfill that? Well, it's interesting. When Jesus comes to say, I fulfilled the law and the prophets, what did they do when they found out who Jesus was? What did the Pharisees do? What did the religious leaders do? They killed him. Even though he's fulfilling exactly what God intended for the law, they crucified him because, honestly, with the religious leaders, it had nothing to do with the law. It had to do with power. It had to do with control. It had to do with envy. So they crucified Jesus. And through the process of Jesus' death and resurrection, you see through the scriptures what ends up happening is God doesn't just say, the Jews are only my special people, but now all those who embrace Jesus now become a part of what we call the church, the body of Christ. We now call ourselves what? God's people. So Jesus' fulfillment expands God's special attention to people beyond the Jewish culture to those who choose to follow Jesus, which is the church. Now, stay with me here. Now, some of you are going, man, this is like way too much for Sunday morning. So then the third, the third category of the law is the ceremonial law, which was the sacrificial system, which obviously every time there was sin and, and, and obviously on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the sacrifice for sin. So animals were sacrificed, different things were sacrificed in order what? To suffice for the failure and sin. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, once and for all so that no longer do human beings have to go through the f- sacrificial system in order to receive forgiveness because Jesus did it once for all on the cross for all time. So he fulfills it completely the law. Everything that the law was intended to be Jesus in his life fulfills that. And then he also fulfills the prophets. If you go through, and we won't have time for this, and some of you things, thank God you're not going to do this. There are over 400 prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in his life. 400. He fulfilled what the prophets spoke about. So what Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to oppose the law. Actually, I came to show you what it looks like when somebody fulfills the law with their life and what the prophets said. He came to fulfill those things. So understanding that Jesus comes and he says that now you and I again as I mentioned we have to understand verse 20 Because that kind of sets up what we're going to talk about this morning Because if you and I just take the handful of verses we just read We're going to walk away saying I have to obey the law completely according to old Old testament Otherwise, i'm going to die and go to hell and not be in the kingdom of god But what jesus begins to explain when he says in verse 20, let me read it again So you catch it and then explain what he says he says for I tell you unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Usually you and I read a verse like that and this is what we said. Man, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, they, they had it down. I have to be better than them. I have to obey more than them. I have to live up to the law better than they did it. I don't think you could do it better than they did it. Paul was one of them and he did pretty well according to the law. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus actually, what he's saying is what he goes on to say in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He demonstrates for you and I what it actually means to live and fulfill the law in our lives and it has to do with you and I understanding what he said in verse 20 our righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees. And there's three times in chapter 6 of Matthew I'm going to read a couple of verses as we go through this that Jesus says something that he repeats over and over and again. And what he talks about is how the religious leaders would live out their righteousness in public for everyone to see, but the intent of the law and what it means to truly be righteous does not have to do with what you do publicly, but it has to do with who you are privately. That's the, it's a huge difference. In fact, what Jesus will use a term, and we've all used the term, in fact, if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, this term has been used to apply to you. It's the word hypocrite. It's, it's, we know that's the main excuse why people don't come to church. Why? Because the church is full of hypocrites and we all are hypocrites right because we live one way over here and some way somehow different over here what's a hypocrite A hypocrite was a greek actor it was like saying you know you ben Affleck, right <laughs> name your favorite actor i don't care but think about it that's your act you're an actor pretending to be something that you're not so it's, it's amazing in our culture we pay hypocrites more than we pay anybody else in our culture <laughs> the person who's best at pretending to be something they're not makes the most money is the most famous in our culture And so what Jesus is saying is that you you are a hypocrite when you project or portray something that is not true about who you are, but that's what you want people to believe. That's what the religious leaders did. That was their life. How do I make sure people believe something about me that's not true? And the best way to describe that is living with a mask, covering over what's really true in our lives, to make people think something's true. So the righteousness of the Pharisees is not that impressive because it's on the surface. It's only skin deep. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to go beyond the surface. Your righteousness has to go beyond surface level, beyond skin deep. It has to go to the core of who you are. So I want to start with what Jesus said. In other words, what righteousness looks like when it's on the surface. And what Jesus is describing for you and I is the performance of our life. You and I live out a performance of righteousness. Just as the religious leaders did. And that's why Jesus doesn't just say this to people 2,000 years ago. He said this to us today to say, listen, you're living out a performance that's inconsistent with who you truly are. Your righteousness has to surpass the surface level and go to the core. So let me just mention So the things in, in Matthew chapter 6. Three things that Jesus mentions that are performance, that really describe righteousness on the surface. And I'm letting Jesus define these points. The first one is that you and I live out the performance of generosity. So in Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus says this. He says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. There's that word again. In the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So the first thing Jesus says is, listen, are you living the performance of generosity? Are you trying to make sure that people know that you are generous? Generous with your time, generous with your resources, and all the areas that you're considered a generous person now this is important to them because the way that 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 giving was done in jesus day is very different than the way we do it today see what we what do we do we take a basket and you put your giving in an envelope and you stick it in that basket and bury it with everything else so nobody really knows how much you're giving or if you're giving maybe you just put the envelope in and it's uh, it's empty i don't know but we don't know what would each other give. In in Jesus' day, you know what they used to do when, when they would have things set up is that actually they had receptacles in a part of the synagogues or even in the temple where people would come and they would publicly give their tithes and offerings. So whatever areas that you were giving towards and helping the needy or giving towards the temple, you would put your gift accordingly in one of those receptacles. I've heard commentators talk there was anywhere between five and seven, maybe. And so they would be all lined up. And that's why Jesus talked about when he was sitting with his disciples one day and they were, they were watching people come and give their offering. And then he talks about the woman who comes and she gave all that she had. It was very public. So what the, what the religious leaders would do is that they would make a big to-do about how they would give. They would make sure everybody was watching. And they would make sure they didn't stick their giving in an envelope. They made sure that as they put money into one of those receptacles that everybody could see how much they were putting in, how much they were giving. And if they stopped to to give to the needy on the street, they didn't do it subtly. They did it with a grandiose kind of look at me. I'm so care I care so much for the needy. Look at what I'm doing. I'm giving to them. Do you see? Do you see? And so there's this huge demonstration of how generous somebody is. And that's why Jesus talks about this performance. And sometimes you and I have a tendency to perform in terms of the way that we perceive our gifts. In fact, that's what motivates us in our culture. How do we get people to give things? We either give them something in return or we give them what everyone desires. We give them notoriety. Organizations do it all the time. You know, when you, when someone comes and says, you know, we, we're looking for donors to give to this, and if you give this much, then you get this. So, like... I've seen stuff, you know, like they're, they're raising funds to put in, you know, a building and on the courtyard, you can buy a brick, right? You know, and if you give $100, you get a brick, but your name doesn't go on it. If you give $500, you get the brick and your name. If you give $1,000, you get the brick, your name, and it's a gold brick. But then if you give like $10,000, your name goes up on the wall because you're really special. Anybody seen that before? And you walk in, well, look at all these wealthy people. Can you imagine if Jesus walked into something like that today? Please, don't be offended. I'm just, what's Jesus talking about? If we're going to be truly generous, nobody should know we're generous except who? God. Because what did Jesus say? When you and I do that, when we say, hey, look at me, look at how generous I am, then you've just received the full impact of your reward. Whatever pat on the back you and I get in this world, that's it. Because when you and I stand before God, God's going to say, hey, you already got your reward. You did. You did. I hope you don't want to bring the brick with you, but that's as good as it's going to get for you. (laughs) I love when somebody gives a ton of money and it's completely anonymous. You don't even know who they are. They just knew that God put it on their heart to be generous. Because what's more important, the God of the universe applauding you or a few people around you who might applaud you for a moment? Are you and I living that kind of performance? What Jesus says is the the righteousness of the Pharisees was about the public display of generosity. But what goes beyond that is when you and I allow it to impact us to the core of who we are. And we don't care about what people think about our generosity. We only care about what God has put on our heart. And that's why Paul wrote in the New Testament when he talked about giving. Paul went beyond tithing, by the way. That's what he said, you know, that you and I are supposed to give according to what God has put on our heart with a good attitude, cheerfully, because God likes a cheerful giver. He says what God has put on your heart. That's why when we give towards things, like even with right sized things, ask God what he wants you to give. He'll put it on your heart and he'll usually scare you to death because usually when God asks you to give, it's more than you think you can give so he can demonstrate his generosity through you. Second thing that Jesus mentions also in Matthew 6, it's not only the performance of generosity, but the performance of prayer. These are interesting. You think, well, this is the list that Jesus picked. Are you and I wearing a mask when it comes to prayer? So let me read Matthew 6, verse 5. It says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, when we read this passage, and I'm just reading this, I'm thinking, okay, verse 5, prayer, that most of us would not want to pray in public. We have a hard time praying with three other people in a group on Sunday morning. We're like, "Uh, I have to go to the bathroom or get coffee right now, right? We, We freak out about prayer. Why? Because somehow in a context beyond just you and God, you and I are convinced that we have to somehow be eloquent in our prayers. That we have to impress people around us by how we pray. As though somehow that's the focus of prayer. Prayer is nothing more than a dialogue between you and the God of the universe. And when it's done in a public context, the people around you are just eavesdropping on your personal conversation. That's all that it is. The way that you pray in private should be the way that you pray in public. But we think, oh, I have to come up with a great prayer. I have to say the right things because if not, people won't think that I'm spiritual. And if I'm not spiritual, I'm a failure. And Really? Because if that's the way you and I pray, guess what? The pat on the back that you get, which never usually happens, usually people man, that was a great prayer. I wish I could pray like. Usually people don't say that because they're too nervous about when they're going to pray. But if that's the extent of our prayers, then guess what? The pat on the back you and I get right there, that's it. That's it. I've been, I know as a pastor, I have to pray publicly all the time. And sometimes I'm asked to go to public events just to pray. And I know there's all kind of different kind of ideas about what you should do. And, you know, especially in public gatherings. So one time I was asked to, uh, in our city, there was a, a relay for life uh, for, uh, for cancer. And so there was this huge fundraiser, thousands of people there participating at the high school. And so they said, hey, can you come and pray for the beginning of the walk that goes all night long? And then into the next day say, oh, I said, oh, I'd be honored to do that. So the first thing I sat down, I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be praying in front of a couple thousand people. And then I started to think about myself. I think, wow, this, this might be my real opportunity to represent our church really well. So I sat down and I started to write out my prayer. And really, my prayer was more of a three-point sermon in a prayer. And I'm telling you, I wrote a couple pages long. I thought, man, that is a good prayer. I'm just being honest with you. I was really impressed. I thought, man, I'm going to, I mean, people are going to just fall on their face and can be convicted before, before God and want to come to Jesus because of my prayer, so it was probably about 9 o'clock. They had done a bunch of different things. It was 9 in the evening. The walk part is going to start. They're going to walk all night long. And so they, they, they called me up to the podium to pray. And so I pull out my piece of paper. And I read through my prayer. And just as I'm reading, I'm thinking, wow, this is good. This is really good. I finished my prayer. And nobody said a word. They just started walking. And I walked with some people and talked and was there for another 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Not one person said anything about my impressive prayer. And I'll be honest. I'm just being honest. I'm, I, am, I am a human being. I was a little frustrated. I thought, hey, I just really offered a great prayer. And I know God heard me. And I know you heard me. And you should pat me on the back. And thank God nobody did. Because then I would have got what I was looking for. Which was the wrong thing. Instead of I should have just thought, you know what? I'm just going to pray. And I'm going to let everybody else overhear my conversation with god and let god know my heart instead of worrying about what everybody else thinks next time you're asked to pray don't pass the buck don't sit, you know it's like when you sit down at a meal with people it's really weird we love jesus but we don't like to pray seriously anybody sit down at a meal you have the thumbs up game anybody play that the thumbs up game is everybody throws their thumb up and the last person to do it guess what you get to pray really well, wow, we love you, God, but I don't want to pray. <laughs> no, just think about that. What if you and I just relaxed a bit and said, you know what, this is a conversation between me and God. And he loves me and he's not looking for the right words. He's looking for my heart. And we prayed that way. Prayer wouldn't be in a performance, would it? It would be completely different than the way we make it. Then the third thing that Jesus says about righteousness being on the surface and the performance that you and I have is he says in Matthew six sixteen that you and I have the performance of suffering. So he put on a mask when it comes to, and he uses the illustration of fasting. So he says in verse 16 of Matthew 6 When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So Jesus is talking about fasting, but he's talking about when you and I go through difficult times, if we're giving up something for God and we're going through a hard time and we're experiencing suffering as you do when you fast and go without food for a long period of time. He said, don't let people know that. Don't put on the show of how spiritual you are, that you'd be willing to suffer for Jesus and let everybody know how incredible you are. Because the only one that ultimately fasting is about, is about giving your attention to God. Giving your attention to Him. Him. You know, we, the leadership was we're processing through the future of our church and, and building and all that stuff. The last three weeks, the, the leadership has been fasting and praying. And we met this last Thursday and brought it an into the fast and talked about some, some things. But in my schedule, I was realizing that, that the first couple weeks, I was fasting. I'd pick a day and I'd fast all day. And, and I never modified my schedule. In fact, I was as busy as ever. And I get to the end of the day, and it's like, oh, I guess I should pray. Isn't it prayer and fasting? There's a reason that you give up food to give your attention fully to God. And I had to start to adjust my schedule. Like, if I'm going to do this, I have to make sure that my focus is in the right place. It's not about, oh, Jesus, I'm suffering for you. Look at me. No, it's I'm giving you my attention by giving up something, by setting that aside to keep my focus on you and what you're doing. But so many times, we want to make pe- people think that we're so spiritual and we're really working hard. We want to give the performance of suffering so that we'll feel spiritual. God cuts right through that. He sees right through that the charade or the performance that we put on because he's looking for righteousness that surpasses the skin deep. It goes to the core of who we are, which means that we don't have to have people bat- pat us on the back for our our fasting or our suffering. You know, I told you many times I played basketball in high school. I hated our training, our pre pre-season training, which was early in the morning. And I started going to, and it was brutal. It's probably the hardest physical condition I've ever gone through in my life. My, our coach, I love him, but I hate him at the same time because he was brutal. He would push us beyond our limit. And what he would do when we would run sprints is that we would have a certain amount of time to run a sprint and then a certain amount of recovery time in between them. And as the training went on over weeks and weeks and weeks, the amount of time that we had to finish a sprint and the amount of time in between the sprints shrank every day. And we were running sprints that were about 250 yards. That's a long sprint. And you would start at 60 seconds with 60 seconds recovery. And then eventually, by the end, we were at 45 seconds with 25 second recovery. It was insane. We're dying but he's not stopping. He's blowing the whistle and he's pushing us. And I remember on the last sprint, I thought, I am going to die. There's just no way I can do this. So I thought, well, I don't want to like not do it. I got to do it and make it look like I'm doing it. And so I ran all the way down and so halfway we had to hit a fence and turn around and come back and I thought, I'm just being honest, you're getting the real me this morning, okay? This is what I did. I thought, I'm going to pretend to pull a hamstring. That's what crossed my mind. My coach can't get mad at me if I'm trying my best and I pull, I get an injury. So we turn, we make turn, we're, we're cruising. I'm kind of up with the ready. I'm like dying. We're all, we can't even breathe. We're dragging ourselves, trying to finish, you know, in 45 seconds. It's just insane. And so suddenly halfway back, I grab my right leg. I'm telling you, I should have got an Academy Award. It was beautiful. <laughs> and I start limping and, and just kind of, you know, as much as I can. I'm getting closer. And I'm telling you, I, I, I'm convinced my coach was full of the Holy Spirit seriously. Because he looked at me with 50 yards to go, and my nickname in high school was Stutz. He's all, come on, Stutz, you're not injured. I'm like, how did he know that? <laughs> and I limped across the, the finish line, and he, he just stared at me. And he's like, really? Really? So obviously, my performance wasn't good enough to fool my coach. So how many times do you and I do that in life? Oh, I'm just going to show how difficult this is. It's really hard. God's not impressed He's not you and I might be good at making other people impressed, but he's not impressed Because if you and I are suffering for jesus, that's a part of the package of following jesus It comes with the territory And what's amazing is when you read through the scriptures and you hear from church history people who truly suffered for jesus Didn't say look at me i'm suffering They didn't They didn't need to because in fact many of them in fact you read through the book of acts They actually got excited about the fact that they were suffering they, they were joyous about the fact that they're suffering. They weren't like, oh, man, this is really difficult. No, they were saying, you know what? I'm following Jesus, and this is part of, part of the territory. It comes with following Jesus. So Jesus talks about this to get us to the point of understanding that our righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees, which means it can't be hypocritical. It has to go beyond skin deep. And that's when he moves to some other things that he repeats throughout chapter 5. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount all weaves together. So how does our righteousness get to the core, get beyond skin deep, get down to the core of who we are? The first thing that it has to do is it has to be based on reality, not perception. Our righteousness has to be based on the reality of who we are. So in Matthew 5, multiple times Jesus says, you have heard it said. And then he's talking about the external law. But then he says, but I tell you, And each one of the times that Jesus uses those phrases, he starts on the exterior of the law, and then he moves right to the heart. In fact, here's an example. Let me read Matthew 5, verse 21 22. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, so he's referring to the law, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, which what's Jesus saying, but the fulfillment of the law, this is what it looks like, is that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subject to judgment. See, God gave the law to his people not so that they would, they would uh, obey all the rules and regulations. He gave them a context of relationship that said, if you live this to the core of who you are, you will be right with me and be in right relationship. But God also knew that they were human beings and they couldn't do it. But what Jesus is saying is, this is what the written law said, but the intent of that law was not just so that you would obey the letter of the law and not murder, but the intent of the law is that you would learn not to be angry with your brother or sister. See, that's, that's to the core. Most of us in this room in our lifetime are not going to take the life of somebody else. But everybody in this room at one time or another has been angry with another human being. Can we all agree to that? We've all violated the law. Whoops, sorry. A news flash for some of us. We have. Because Jesus says it's, it's, about, it's not about the outcome, it's about the motivation inside. That's where it starts. Murder doesn't start when you take a weapon and take somebody else's life. Murder starts when you, do, you allow unresolved anger to dwell in you and you never get to the point where you extend forgiveness or you bring reconciliation in a relationship and you let that anger just fester in you. So Jesus says it's got to be based on reality, not on some perception. Are we the real deal? Are we truly authentically followers of Jesus? Do we strive to live out, not because we're trying to impress anybody, but live out what God's intended for our lives? Is it real or is it a show? I've talked about my dad multiple times and eventually I'll get him here to speak and you'll get to see him in person. Some of you already know him. But I have watched my dad over my entire lifetime and I'm convinced, I know my dad's not perfect, but I'm telling you, he's the real deal. And that's one of the reasons I've been able to understand what it means to follow Jesus. I've watched him live his life. He's been an incredible example to me. And what he talks about publicly, he lives privately. And I see it all the time. And I've told my stories about our skateboard and about my sister being kidnapped for candy and about our neighbor blowing up our mower, all these things. And my dad lived out the reality of what it means to follow Jesus. I saw it again on our trip to China. I couldn't believe it. We're sitting on the plane. Our flight out was like five hours delayed. So we're flying in the middle of the night, 11-hour flight to Shanghai. We're at the end of the flight. I'm exhausted. Everyone on this plane is exhausted. Just can't wait to land. And so my dad, finally, when the gal next to him, she's about probably 20, 21, 22 years old. She's from China, from the Shanghai area. He starts a conversation with her, which is great. I love to talk to people on the plane. But So they start talking about where she lives and what she does and what she was doing in the United States and, and that she's married. And so we're having this dialogue for, I don't know, the last 15, 20 minutes of the flight. And as we're, we're doing this, one of the things that my dad has always done is he always tries to build a relationship with the end and result of he wants people to know who Jesus is. He doesn't preach at them, but, but he gives them opportunity. And so we're having this conversation, and we're just about to deboard the plane. And she, she turns to my dad, and she says, hey, she said it would be great for us to have some kind of contact. And my dad was about to say the same thing to her. So my dad pulls out this little track he has. He carries it with him all the time. It's called The Purpose of Life. And she's trying to learn English. So he says, I'll tell you what, he takes out this track and he writes his name and his email address and he gives it to her. He says, hey, you should try to read this. It's in English, it'll help you. But he says, it just talks about the bigger concept of what's going on in the world and what your life is really about. And she was so impressed. She said, thank you, I'll take that. And so she took it. Now, I don't know if she read it, but I have to ask my dad in following up, did did she email you or did you email her? Is there any contact after this? I guarantee knowing my dad, he's probably already emailed her. And that so impressed me because, I'll be honest with you, I'm sitting on that plane thinking, just get me off this thing. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. We're here to go, you know, help the house churches and preach to the pastors. Yet, right in front of us is the mission field. Nobody else on the plane knew that except me and my dad. And I watched it. Completely consistent. He's the real deal. It's based on what? Reality, not perception. Who cares if you can stand in front of thousands and sound eloquent? If you can't talk to the person sitting next to you on the airplane who needs Jesus just as much. Are we the real deal? Are we the real deal in our lives? Do we live out our life in private as we do in public? When it comes to following Jesus, do we do things that only God knows? Or do we only do things that other people will know about? See, it has to be about what's really true about you and I. Second thing about righteousness getting to the core of who we are is it has to be based in private, not public, which I just mentioned. So Matthew 6, what is Jesus talking about? What's the the three passages we just read? He said, this is the public perception of what the hypocrites or religious leaders do, but what's most important is what's done in private because that's what God rewards. So it's this difference between the two. So if our righteousness is gonna get to the core of who we are, it has to get to a place where we realize something very important. You and I don't have to impress anybody. We don't have to put on a show for anybody. The only person that matters in this world is Jesus. That's it. You don't have to impress your boss or your spouse or your friend or your neighbor. You don't have to do that. The only person that you and I need to be concerned with is God himself. And what's great is God doesn't look for a performance. He just looks inside and says, what's going on inside of here? What are you doing in private? Because that's what I know is real. Because you're not looking for accolades. You're not looking for the pat on the back. You're not looking for people to like you. That's why, not why you're doing it. You're doing it solely because you know it's right. It's righteous. That's what God wants for us. I'm just thinking about that for a moment. Courtney's played lacrosse for for many years. Um, it's a sport that I had no idea what was, what lacrosse was until Courtney started playing and I still have no idea what lacrosse is about even though she's been playing for four or five years but one of the things that you know when you're playing a sport just like anything that's public you know you're you you want to work hard but you know you want to play well and there's that tendency that tension between I want people to see how good I play this sport and I just want to play the sport for the love of the sport and so you know Courtney was especially early on in the earlier years couple of years in she was on some really great teams very competitive teams and and did really well and and some of the things, she had to balance that tension of trying to be the star player, wanting to get the pat on the back from the coach and the other players and all those things. And so I love my daughter because she's honest. And she was just saying, this is what I'm walking through. And so, so Kim and her, they came up with this thing to help her on the field focus on what was most important. Because there's a tendency when you lose sight and you're trying to impress other people, you don't play the way you're supposed to play because you're not playing out of passion. You're not playing out of skill. You're trying to impress other people. So one of the things that Kim and Courtney worked out, I love this, I would watch this in games, is that if, if Courtney was struggling or if Kim thought Courtney was struggling, they would catch each other's eye, Kim sitting on the sideline, and they'd both do this. And there are times I watch my daughter stand in the middle of the field before face-off, and she'd do this, which looks kind of stupid. Like, what? It's not raining. Well, as Oregon. It's always raining. But anyway, she's pointing to the sky. And she's looking at Kim, and why are they saying that? Because one of the things that Courtney learned to do was to realize that she was playing for only an audience of one. That's all she was playing for. And if she knew she did her best and did everything she could in her physical ability to play lacrosse to bring glory to God, that's all that mattered. Didn't matter what her coach said. Didn't matter what her other players said. Didn't matter if she was popular. She was playing for God. And sometimes in our life, you and I need that kind of reminder. We need to be reminded it's not about this. I need a reminder every Sunday when I come up here because I know that that, that there's the potential for me to make this about me. Man, I really better have a good message. Man, if if I don't have a good message, people aren't going to come back next week. They don't come back next week. They're not going to tithe. They're not going to tithe. We can't pay the bills. Forget about it. Because when I stand before God someday, it's not going to matter how good I preach or how good I pray publicly. It's going to be, God's going to ask me, did your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees? Did you live, for, and did you preach, and did you lead for an audience of one, or did you do it for popularity? See, so you and I have to move beyond that. I don't know if I've shared this, but one of the things that God has been working on me over the last number of months was really living for His glory, not being about me. And that is really hard. And I was writing some stuff down in my journal, and I, and I wrote down this phrase, and I wrote down this question to myself, and I said this, I said do I really purely live for God's glory, or do I live for God's glory through my success? Which means, I'll bring glory to God as long as I get a piece of the pie. As long as I get a little bit of the action, of the accolades, glory to you, God. God came back at me with a question. It wasn't, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was definitively from the Lord. And this is what I wrote down, what I felt like for the Lord's sake, is he asked, he responded to my question with a question kind of like Jesus always did. He said, are you willing to die in obscurity if it will bring glory to me? That's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but I've been grappling that. Am I willing to die in obscurity? Which means nobody will ever know my name. Nobody might ever know that I existed on this planet. But somehow my impact in their lives will point them so much to the glory of God that they won't even know my name. I'm struggling with what that looks like because ultimately I desire that, but man, my flesh gets in the way because I so want what? I want people to like me when ultimately what does it matter? It only matters that God looks at me with favorable heart and attitude and desires me to be in his family. That's all that matters. It's not that we dispense of caring about other people, but I can't live for the glory of other people. I can only live for the glory of God. That's all of us. We have to come to grips with that. And the third thing is that righteousness to the core is based on transformation, not modification. So Jesus is getting to the core. He's going beyond skin deep. And true righteousness isn't about the modifications you and I can make on the outside. It's about what only the Holy Spirit can do through the work of Jesus in our life to transform us from the inside out. Because what Jesus is describing only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. To actually be in the core of who we are, in our hearts, having the right motives, that only comes and is produced by God's work in our life. But you and I work really hard on the outside to kind of modify and change and adjust. And that kind of life is exhausting because it's not genuine. It's not real because it's not coming from inside. It's on the outside. And the Pharisees became... They became pros at doing that. They were great at living on the outside and trying to make it look like it was really coming from the inside. But what you and I have to understand is that when Jesus intersects our lives and we fully surrender to him, he doesn't just modify us, he transforms us. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Probably you've heard the verse a few times. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Jesus doesn't remodel. He rebuilds. That's what he always does. He rebuilds who we are so that we are who he wants us to be. And sometimes you and I have to come to grips with the fact that if we're honest with ourselves, our righteousness is about our behavior modification. Just try to be a better person. Don't do that thing anymore. And you get mad and then the cycle is you blow it again and you go back and the cycle of shame and condemnation, all those things, and just coming to the place where you're surrendering to Jesus, not living by some legalistic standard. See, you know when you've uh, seen God transform you from the inside out, when you look at things that are difficult like obeying Jesus and you've moved from I have to to I actually want to. That's when you know God's gotten a hold of you. Because you're no longer living under obligation. You're actually living under a deep conviction of desire and passion that you want to do the right thing. And you're driven to do that. That's when there's this change. And sometimes we never even get there because we just want to modify the outside and we really struggle with that. You know, for me, one of the areas that that I've always struggled with this in, in that over my lifetime, I've I've always had some kind of a devotional time or a quiet time when I read scripture. And I've gone from, you know, reading through the Bible in a year and Life Journal, which is a great context for, for things, but getting a reading plan. And, and so many times I would, I would get to the point like, man, I feel so guilty. I missed a day and then I have to make up a day and, and I have, didn't check off the box. And anybody relate? You know, somehow like God doesn't love me because I missed, you know, January 31st reading. You know, you start thinking, oh my gosh, you know, God, God, you just, And so for me, I have a tendency that I just like react the other way. It's like, well, I don't have to do that. That's the law. And then before you know it, a few days go by and you're not really in the word and and you you can feel the impact in your life. And so you're kind of, I'm going to the extremes. And so what's happened to me over the last number of years is I just gave that up to God. It's like, God, I want to read the scriptures, but I don't want to be somehow legalistically bound to have to do something. And as you know, as I've given that up, now I find myself picking up my Bible and just reading without any kind of a reading schedule and I find myself picking up my Bible multiple times in a day. Not just getting to the end of my devotion and say, well, got it done. Whew. No, I'll go back and say, yeah, I just, I want to read again. And like the last three weeks, I don't know where it came from, but I just started reading through the minor prophets. I don't know. Multiple times, I'm just going back and reading the same thing again. And I've never like, I've read through the minor prophets, but never like, "Ooh, wow, I can't wait to open Joel, you know. It's like my, my life verse is in jolt. No, not really. Seriously, and you're reading through, but there's so much there. You know how nice it is to want to open the Bible and not have to? I thank God for that. And that's what God designs for us. If our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we want to do things. We don't have to. We want to. It's a change and it's a shift for you and I. And then finally, righteousness to the core is also based on Jesus, not on me it's not on us. See, our righteousness is something that comes that is given to you and I that transforms us because ultimately God knows that we're flawed and if 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 all the only way that we could experience relationship with him or salvation was through the law, then all of us are done right now. But there's something that happens that when you and I choose to surrender our life to Jesus, we get the righteousness of Jesus. Listen to Paul, Romans 3:20 and to 22. He says therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We realize our failures and our errors. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. That's, again, the fulfillment of the law and prophets. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness that you and I strive, it's a gift. It's a gift that comes through belief. It's the same thing that was said of Abraham. And and then also in the next chapter, Romans 4 verse 3, it says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. The word believe is more than what you think. The word believe for a Jew meant I'm all in. Belief is not a cognitive exercise that I somehow gain information about God and choose to believe that, and then I'm good. Belief means I'm all in. I jump in with both feet. It's what faith demonstrates. Faith without works is dead. If I truly believe that it's going to be reflective in my life, and it's reflective in my life, then the righteousness of Christ is credited to my account. Why? Because I've truly believed. Abraham believed and did what? He left the country that he knew to go somewhere he didn't know where he was going. But he believed God enough to take a step of faith that he didn't know where the road would end. He didn't know where the final destination was. But he believed God, and therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. You and I, believing in Jesus and being all in with our lives, guess what? We get the righteousness of Christ that goes far beyond the surface level. It gets down to the core of who we are, it's where we live. And understanding that. And I think you and I need. Some of us need to see that today. As we understand what it means to truly fulfill the law and the prophets. To truly live out what that means in our life to the core. But some of us. The most important step is understanding that you and I. If we choose to believe and follow Jesus. Are covered by his righteousness. Because many of us live in guilt and shame. And we try to live according to the law. Only to fail over and over and over and over again. Let me close with this. have some good friends. Who were pastors for a number of years. Gifted leader. But he, because of different circumstances, none of them good, he ended up having an ongoing affair with his secretary. So as a result of that, obviously, he had to step down from ministry. And then, of course, the next step was, would his marriage survive? And his wife is one of the most amazing women I've ever met because she had every reason to walk away from him, every reason to accuse him of what was true about his life, about how he had had been unfaithful to her, how he had lied and been deceptive, all these things. And when she was thinking through what would be the next step, the Lord spoke to her and said this, I want to reconcile your marriage because there's too many stories of broken marriages and not enough of restored marriages. And when she heard that, she said, okay, I'm in this. So she started to do things to reach out to him, to love him, even though he was the violator. And she would absorb some of his own frustration as he processed through his own brokenness. And this went on for months and even years as they, they worked through it. And they they, they went through counseling. and went through and they made the commitment to be together. And even after all this time, as years went by, she knew that he still dealt with guilt and shame over his sin. That he was constantly beating himself up for what he had done, even though she had chosen to forgive him years ago. So she did this amazing thing. She showed it to me one day. She said... I knew he needed to see not just how I see him, but he needed to see how Jesus sees him. So she actually made him a robe of righteousness. She actually crafted a robe that was a symbol, and she presented it to him and said, I want you to put this on, because I need you to understand that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, so that he would understand visually and physically What was going on spiritually. The reality was that God wasn't looking on him with condemnation. He had already asked forgiveness. She had already forgiven him. That he needed to see the way that the God of the universe saw him. And so she gave him that. And every time he felt guilt and shame about his past. He would go and put on that robe. And be reminded once again. I'm covered by the righteousness of Christ. He covers me. Some of you and I need to be reminded of that. We are covered by... His righteousness in our lives. So to understand the law means that you and I have to believe in Jesus and allow His righteousness to penetrate our hearts so that our righteousness goes beyond that of the Pharisees. That it comes from the inside out, not the outside in. Worship team is going to join us again as we conclude our time with some more worship. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your clarity that comes... With something that could be confusing About how we actually Even though we don't live under the law We live under grace Actually how we can live out the law As you did And so Lord we ask today That we would understand The fullness of what it means To live in grace And the fullness of what it means To fulfill the law As you fulfilled the law Not because we can obey All the rules and regulations But because we can fulfill the law Through righteousness That comes from you That transforms us From the inside out That allows us to actually want to be obedient, not have to. So Lord, would you do that in us today? Would you allow us to be people who are so changed and so transformed that actually we find it a joy to obey you? We find it a joy to live according to the conduct that you expect of those who follow you, that that becomes something that we want to do because you've transformed us. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence. In your name, amen.